0: So this theme of the talk tonight is practicing with difficult emotions. And I think we we saw that one of the reasons why conflicts are so challenging is that we have a number of difficult emotions that arise. Often, we might have, again, fear, anxiety, sadness, anger, and so forth. And the kind of approach I'd like to offer is very much in the spirit of what we've looked at so far today, which is to explore how to work with uh, emotions, and to do so in a way which is increasingly uh, non-dualistic. In other words, to, in a sense, open to emotions, but not to see a particular emotion, even a so-called difficult emotion, as a problem per se. But rather uh, that we can actually investigate emotions including difficult ones, and keep learning from them. I think this relationship of difficult emotions to dualism was pointed out actually by the historical Buddha. This is, this is uh, from 2,500 years ago. Anger, confusion, and dishonesty arise when things are set in pairs as opposites. There's something about the whole structure of dualistic thinking which is connected with difficult emotions arising. I think much as David was pointing out that when we have an opposition and we cling to it or uh, try to push something away, there's inherent tension there. David was calling that the sense of of lack. There's something um, unstable and there's something that uh, we actually represent something that's not real that there is some kind of opposite. There's some kind of opposition that has an absolute standing. And so the counsel uh, for tonight will be to work with difficult emotions in a number of different ways. First, though, I want to... uh, take an inventory of some difficult emotions. I'd like to just to invite people to name different kinds of emotions which are difficult for you. Go ahead. Anger. Anger. Anxiety. Anxiety. Envy. Anger. Yeah. En- eh? Envy. Envy. Jealousy. Jealousy. torpor some kind of low energy yeah did we get fear 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 belongs there depression depression regret regret yeah grief and loss loss. yeah shame Shame. maybe guilt Mm mm-hmm confusion yeah. Self-judgment. Mm-hmm. self-judgment and that can have sometimes an emotional feel and has a cognitive aspect and, and I think um, most of these emotions are also are connected with patterns of thinking I think we can see that with judgment very clearly sometimes it can feel it can feel like a cloud of depression there's a feeling aspect but it also has a cognitive aspect And I think all of the emotions, contrary to often the way we think about emotions, actually are very connected with certain patterns of thinking. And we'll come back to that. And so what I'd like to suggest is that that there are, I think I'm going to talk about four main ways of working with difficult emotions. The first is using antidotes and coming back to balance. Uh, The second is working with heart practices. These may be interrelated. The third is mindfulness, and the fourth is wisdom. So these are all um, practices in a sense that we, we can be developing. And we do so in the spirit, of taking everything as practice I think you know that by now right <laughs> sometimes we say nothing left behind <laughs> all parts of ourselves are welcome the tibetan lojong teaching goes like this turn all obstacles into the path of practice that's radical Or the poet uh, Rilke uh, says it like this. Let's see where this is. He uses the language of speaking about God. But you can consider God, maybe God is like awareness. God speaks to each of us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You, sent out beyond your recall. Go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. So. Let everything happen to you, in a way. And so we can... Uh, let me go through these uh, four ways of working with difficult emotions, and I'll bring in especially reference to two emotions which are dear to me: <laughs> fear and anger. Okay, and I'll I'll go into some depth with with those and tell some stories. Okay, so. I think first of all, it's very important that when there are difficult emotions occurring and experience, and I'll especially, um, I'll refer both to the context of meditation and to the context of everyday life and you know, being in the midst of action and interaction. So first, it's quite important, and this really actually requires mindfulness and wisdom, to know whether we are lost and stuck with difficult emotions. And so we need a certain degree of mindfulness and wisdom even to know that. In other words, on the meditation cushion, am I simply lost in self-judgment and beating myself up such that I'm telling the same stories over and over again? Am I lost in anger in a similar way? Am I consumed so that I actually am not very present and not able to really to be mindful very well? And of course, this can happen in daily life all the time. Something is really consuming us. There's continual, repetitive thinking. The emotions are very strong. Our bodies get affected. We feel often um, out of balance and so forth. And if that is the case, we need a certain amount of mindfulness to tell us, I am out of balance. And then we actually want to do that which helps us come to balance. That's really an important first step. And so that can mean all sorts of things. It could mean to, uh, on the meditation cushion, it could mean to uh, bring in another practice, you know, which we sometimes call an antidote. An antidote is a practice that can shift the energy of what's happening. When metta becomes strong, metta is a wonderful antidote. In fact, classically, in the kind of mythologies around the Buddha, metta was understood as an antidote to fear. People know the story of Meta as an antidote to fear. How many know this, some of the story? It goes like this then. <laughs> uh, a group of, I think monks, were meditating in the forest. And there were tree spirits there in that belief system Sort of an anim, we would call it an animist belief system. There were tree spirits, and they at first welcomed the monks. But then they came to the view that the monks had overstayed their welcome <laughs> because they were just staying in the forest, and the tree spirits said they are staying too long. We must get rid of them, and they had the capacity to create horrible images that appeared before the monks. They also had the capacity to produce stinky smells which were worse. And so the monks were besieged by horrible visions and stinky smells and it was too much and they ran back to the Buddha and said, Help! <laughs> and he said, I have just the practice for you. And he taught them Metta. And I've actually had friends in Thailand who've used Metta in prison, who were student activists who were imprisoned uh, at some of the times where there's been repressive regimes in Thailand and they use metta in prison, you know. You probably heard stories of Tibetan prisoners who've done something similar, who use heart practices. And and so they went back with their metta practice. The tree spirits tried, as it were, their old tricks of horrific visions and sticky smells. And something was different for the monks. And they were able to keep their center, keep their balance. And they were able to uh, uh, actually stay there. And eventually, the tree spirits stopped trying to get rid of them and started to appreciate the quality of metta. And eventually said you can stay here as long as you wish and we will protect you. Very similar to the kind of archetypal story of the night of the Buddha's awakening when the forces of Mara, uh, that uh, Mara is the personification of greed, hatred, and delusion, sort of a Buddhist devil figure, and came and... uh, came not just with the seductions that David mentioned, but also came with uh, arrows and weapons. And the story is that the force of the loving kindness turned the arrows into flowers. And so when the metta gets strong, it can be very powerful. I was also thinking of a time uh, in my own experience when I used metta. We can use it in small and large ways. We can, for example, if metta is strong and one wakes up at three in the morning and has extreme self-judgment or something happened yesterday or the day before that really is on your mind and bothering you, and you're consumed, and at three in the morning one's very vulnerable Mindfulness is not typically at its greatest strength. (laughs) And we're often taken away, right? We're taken away by the emotions, the thinking. It's very hard to be centered. That's a time for metta. It can be very, very effective at that time when we're we're otherwise quite vulnerable. And I was thinking of an experience that I had with uh, fear. Uh, About three or four years ago, I went to do a retreat at a retreat center called Tara Mandala which is in southwest Colorado. Has anyone been there? Wonderful retreat center. Um, The main teacher is Sultran Alioni, who's done uh, marvelous books, just taught here a little while ago, and wrote, one of her books is called Women of Wisdom. She's really a major force for bringing back the women's traditions in Tibetan Buddhism. And, It was a retreat, and uh, I wanted to camp out, which about half the people were camping out, and they brought me to a nice site, which was somewhat remote. And they said, this is a really great site. Of course, there was a, a bear who came through here a week ago. But we caught the bear, and we've taken it 50 miles away. And so... In some state of mind or other, I said, "Okay, <laughs> I'll stay there." So I got my campsite together, and you know, uh, went to the retreat proceedings, and you know, came back to my campsite, whatever, at nine thirty or something like that. Got things together and lay down and thought about the bear <laughs> and had anxiety and thought about the bear for quite some time. At that point, I thought, some some point it occurred to me, it's time for metta. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually, I started practicing metta. I think it was 10.30 or something. And I started practicing it, and I just kept practicing it, and there was fear and I practiced it for three hours in a row. And at three hours, there was no more fear. And I went to sleep right away, and I didn't worry about anything, and I woke up, and I then stayed at that site for the rest of the retreat, which I think was nine or 10 days, and I didn't think about the bear anymore. I don't think any bear came, yes's yeah. a good question who who was the metaphor? the bear or me? <laughs> uh, I think it was for multiple beings, but mostly for me and my friends. <laughs> i i don't i I don't know if I had a lot of metaphor for the bear to be, to be honest, okay and so. We can, we can find different kinds of antidotes. And coming back to balance with difficult emotions is really something important to remember. And actually, in meditation, or sometimes in daily life, it's hard to know that we're stuck or caught. We really need to know the distinction between being able to be mindful and aware of difficult emotions and being stuck or caught. Really, really crucial. And then we can use a variety of antidotes. Think of antidotes as something like you know, uh, aspirin or something that shifts the energy away from stuckness, that moves us towards balance. So it can be all sorts of things, and depending on the power of the difficult emotion. So we might do something physical. We might do qigong, we might do yoga, we might take a vigorous walk. You know, if we're in a really difficult mood, sometimes just taking a vigorous walk can be tremendously helpful. We might be with beauty. I've also heard it said, I think I mentioned that beauty is sometimes seen as an antidote to fear. Something that uplifts us um, in that way. We might talk with a friend. We might read a book, listen to a Dharma talk. All sorts of things, depending on the strength of the difficult emotion, have the power to bring us back to balance. And so it's very helpful to have a kind of toolbox of uh, antidotes, a variety of ways to come back to balance. It's kind of a segue to the understanding of what I call this uh, collective set of heart practices. Metta is a heart practice. And metta can be an antidote, There are these other practices in the family of heart practices that include compassion, joy, equanimity, or the classical four divine abodes or Brahma Vihara, probably many of you know those, that we have um, concrete practices that we can do. Those can often be wonderful antidotes. Um, I've had students who used joy and practices to cultivate joy as antidotes to uh, the cloud of self-judgment, for example. It's like one goes somewhere else. One learns how to shift the states. You learn how to shift out of it. Um, and actually, some interesting practices that I, that I use, for example, in working with judgments, uh, going back a little bit to the first category of antidotes, We can also use uh, somatic states, states of the body. It's very, very interesting. Um, I work, one of the ways I work is with um, finding postures of the body in which one feels expansive. You might even right now, like, is there a posture that you can go to? And I'll even invite you if you want to, to stand up. Go to a posture which is expansive for you, which feels centered, balanced, expansive. And as you do that, yeah, you can move your hands, arms, in whatever way you like, and notice the body carefully. How do you know that this state is expansive for you? For some, it might be that the spine is straight. A lot of difficult emotions, and we'll come to this with mindfulness, when we look at them, there can be contraction in the chest. There can be tension in the body, right? And so when we go to body states that are relaxed and expansive, it actually can be an antidote. We can actually change posture and the mind shifts because there's a mind-body relationship, right? It's very, very interesting. Do you notice yourself in this state actually feeling a little different than you might have one minute ago? You know, Hor Thich Nhat Han, the Vietnamese teacher says, smile. And the researchers have done, showed, that when you actually have smile, you change the posture just a little bit. And what, there are different chemicals secreted, right? And different things are happening in the brain. Very, very interesting. And so what one can do sometimes is to actually shift your posture. It gives me a lot more appreciation for the early, you know, uh, early teachers who tried to have us have good posture. I went to, I was a a kid and I was in England for a year and we actually had classes in posture you know, and I think they used to have that a long time ago, in schools. But uh, I don't know if they were speaking about it in the same way that I am. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to mention there's a very popular TED talk by yeah. a um, psychological researcher about power poses. Oh. So- How So comment. Uh, there's a TED talk about uh, very popular about power poses, and and. Um, I think that's related. It's basically that the, the uh, actual way that the body is configured is connected with emotional life. You know? And it's partly, we'll come to it later, we partly also want to study what's the body like when we're actually caught, when we're in difficult emotions. Where do we go with the body, with anger, with fear, with sadness? Study it. It'll, it's part of this. And then, but what we can actually do is shift shift the posture. Very, very interesting, you know. And it's actually one reason why posture is emphasized in a lot of meditative traditions. Because there's, you know, if we, those of you, us who've been doing the qigong, know that actually the, you know, just the way the body is, the energy circulates in a different way. And it can actually be very hard when we're in that expansive posture for difficult emotions to happen. Isn't that interesting? Why didn't we get that taught to us? (laughs) It's so simple, you know, in a certain way. Of course, you know, some really strong emotions uh, may still be hard, but it's basically, uh, it's really about the way that particular emotions also shape the body in certain ways. And if we shape the body in a different way, it can be an antidote that helps us to shift our states. Very interesting. So, So back to the second area, there are these family of heart practices which are really uh, powerful and very important to develop. We have to have the metta pretty well developed for it to be a force at three in the morning or with potential bears. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like you do metta a few times and then you're in a difficult state and you call forth the metta, it's not gonna be strong enough. It's a reason to practice it every day. Then it will be strong enough. And every day can just mean 10 minutes a day. That will go a long way. And we can practice other heart practices that work for us. It could be joy or compassion, uh, equanimity. All of these can be valuable. Equanimity um, uh, works in similar ways as as metta, as a... um, Heart practice, and we can say something, the one that I use, the phrase I use is, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. It's really a wisdom practice also. And it can sometimes help uh, move us out of something. Or a practice like um, uh, gratitude can be very, very helpful practice. That's why we did that at the beginning of the Joanna Macy-inspired work. It brings a certain energy in those of us who have strong tendencies to have uh, critical and judgmental minds who tend to go towards the problem in a situation, you know, the glass half empty rather than the glass half full. Anyone have that tendency, conditioning? Okay. Just just a handful have raised their hands. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I do, I have that conditioning and Uh, I would say that um, gratitude practice and joy practice are practices which help us to focus on the positive in the situation. And I can let you know for sure, we do not lose our capacities for critical thinking by learning how to go to the positive. (laughs) But it exercises a different muscle. Very crucial. And so we can work in that way with practices like joy, uh, gratitude, and they can be very powerful. Uh practice like forgiveness, uh, and I'm sorry that we're not really going to have a lot of time for in-depth work with forgiveness, but um, it is something I'm personally very, very interested in on many levels, personal level, interpersonally, and also socially, and it can be quite powerful. It was a very key tool in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, You know, Desmond Tutu, as some of you know, wrote a book called No Future Without Forgiveness. There's a lot that could be said, but just to be brief about it, it's a practice. The typical way we do it is that we offer forgiveness to another if another has done something that is connected with my pain or my suffering. Or I ask for forgiveness if I have done something unskillful. And I may give forgiveness to myself if I have done things which led to my, lead to my own suffering. And forgiveness is um, more about working with the residue of reactivity from something that's happened. It's not about condoning what's happened. It's not about excusing what's happened but it's about saying I have reactivity and difficult emotions in relation to what has happened. And it would be skillful if they were not present, if I could work with them skillfully and so they would be worked with and transformed. Not to be suppressed or repressed. You know, a teacher who works for this into her Yeah. every Yeah, yeah. Comment about working forgiveness into practice. and we teach forgiveness quite a bit on our meta retreats. In fact, if you're interested, I, I uh, had a lot of focus on forgiveness in the last few months, and I gave uh, several talks. Were on Dharma seeds, some of them long, and I really got inspired. I, I read about a lot of uh, very intense situations where forgiveness was brought in. Again, not about condoning not about uh, getting rid of anything. Jack Kornfield said forgiveness is giving up hope of a better past. And it's interesting with difficult emotions because once you have it as a regular practice, you can use it in everyday life. I use it, for example, in driving. Someone cuts me off, I go Which occurs sometimes. Not always. And, and, um, but then I might do one minute of forgiveness practice. It's like a little bit of cleaning up after the mess. And can do it interpersonally. Something is happening, you can do it with all these things. One has acted unskillfully, and you feel regret, you feel other difficult emotions, maybe self judgment. When you're good at it and have practiced a lot, a short amount of forgiveness practice can sometimes be very effective right on the spot, right after something happens in daily life. Or try it in meditation. And maybe I can maybe I can post the forgiveness instructions on the board. You can copy them. You know? And then for f- further investigation, you know we have uh, resources. Uh, Dharma Seed website has has talks. Um, mine or others. So there are these heart practices, can be very, very beautiful and powerful and be uh, tremendous resources. They, they both um, provide antidotes and, the, and powerful antidotes and they also start shifting our attention, we might say, towards the awakened mind and heart more The Buddha called these the divine abodes. They were places of abiding. When you read some of the old texts, you can get the sense that when the monks or nuns didn't have anything better to do, they just hung out in metta, compassion, joy, and equanimity. They were called, you know, they were called places of abiding. Interesting. Places to find one's home. The word actually is vihara. Some of you know Brahma-vihara means the divine abodes or the abodes of Brahma as the king of the gods. And vihara is just a simple word for a home or a house. So these are like you make your home increasingly in these awakened states of heart. And one center of gravity changes and that in the long run makes it such that often the difficult emotions when they really get hold of you and you get stuck, they feel more alien. They're less connected with what we feel as our deeper nature. The emphasis in the Buddhist tradition has been especially on, I think, in addition to working with the heart practices has been and antidotes, has been especially on using mindfulness and wisdom to work with difficult emotions. And I'll give some time uh, to those. Mindfulness is really only possible with difficult emotions when we have some degree of balance. And in a way, we, we start to open to what's difficult. And again, uh, much like that teaching of the two arrows, remember that teaching of the two arrows, Part of the center of our practice is to learn how to be willing to just hang out with what's difficult. It goes against all our conditioning. To really hang out and be present. This is from Rumi. This is a kind of a parable about how It's necessary to be with what's difficult. One dervish. Dervish is a Sufi practitioner. You remember the whirling dervishes? One dervish to another. What was your vision of God's presence? Response. I haven't seen anything. But for the sake of conversation, I'll tell a story. God's presence is there in front of me. A fire, listen to that, a fire on the left, a lovely stream on the right. One group walks towards the fire, into the fire, another towards the sweet flowing water. No one knows which are blessed and which not. Whoever walks into the fire, suddenly appears in the stream. A head goes under on the water surface, that head pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Get that? Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are cheated with this reversal. The trickery goes further. The voice of the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not fire. I am Fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. (laughs) If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. You should wish to have a hundred thousand set of moth wings so you could burn them away one set a night. A difficult teaching, right? And so we practice on the cushion or maybe in certain situations where we have support. Could be psychological work or maybe being with a partner. We look for that support and then we learn how to be more and more with the difficult emotions. Learn how to be mindful of them. Be present with them. Hang out with them. There is a, a wonderful teaching, which I think some of you have heard, which we use a lot at Spirit Rock, which gives guidance uh, for mindfulness of difficult emotions and actually brings in wisdom as well. And it's an acronym called RAIN, R-A-I-N, developed by, uh, originally by Michelle McDonald-Smith. How many know that teaching? Several of you. And it's a teaching that goes like this, that our mindfulness of difficult emotions, and this could also be for being with emotions in general and thoughts in general, has these four um, components. The first, R stands for recognition. A stands for acceptance in the sense of this is really here, remember that earlier discussion, not in the sense of this is great or this should stay for the rest of my life, but this is here, acceptance of it being present. I stands for inquiry and investigation and N stands for uh, non-identification. Another way it's sometimes said is not taking it personally. Okay, so what do each of these look like? Recognition very crucial, it would be to name that this is present. There is anger, there is fear, there is sadness. So much changes in our work with difficult emotions when we actually can name them. Sometimes this would be on the meditation cushion, sometimes this would be interpersonally, sometimes it'd be in a group or organization, just to name, you know, I'm feeling anger in the room can sometimes be very, very crucial. Just to name it. A lot of things, times, everyone knows something is there, but it's not named, right? Or people try to suppress things. So just to name an emotion is an important starting point in whatever uh, domain we're in, interpersonal, social, individual. Recognize it, naming it, know that it's there. Acceptance is, being willing to be with it in a way not trying to push it away not trying to resist it not trying to get rid of it and that's very difficult I think we know that on the meditation cushion how many of us have sometimes used mindfulness with the belief that if we're mindful enough of a difficult emotion it will go away I use my... anyone relate to that? Well, I think probably all of us at certain moments, right? You know, hey, if I get this meditation really down enough, I can just um, be mindful and all my difficult experiences will just float away and I'll be left with bliss. I thought that. I actually thought that I should, after a few years of meditation, no longer have difficult emotions. This is called simple delusion. (laughs) Uh, And so uh, we learn how to be with it. And then the inquiry and and, um, investigation is really, really important. And this is where we actually study the emotions. We hang out with it. There's something that's very crucial in actually knowing how the emotions come to us at the many levels of experience. So for an example, I think I might have mentioned this. I'm not, I'm not sure. Maybe not. Um, I once uh, was on retreat. I was in... I think I was on retreat at the Dominican College. Before Spirit, this was before Spirit Rock existed. We used to rent the Dominican College and do retreats there. And I was doing a retreat there. And I found myself angry. And I found myself continually angry. And I ended up being angry for uh, 10 days in a row, about 18 hours a day. I may not seem like an angry person, basically. I better not ask that. <laughs> but most most people wouldn't take me to be an overly angry person, or at least not it's not on the surface. Um, but I was angry and I was I was actually angry at my meditation teachers. And I'll tell you a little bit of the content just so you understand, it's less important than the fact that I investigated anger for 10 days in a row for 18 hours a day and lived to tell the tale. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the content was that I had actually just moved to California and I had actually been living in um, Kentucky in rural Ohio, kind of on my own. I had originally come from the East Coast And I was really, I I was um, probably a little over 10 years into my practice, and I was really, really uh, committed to seeing how the practice would work in this culture. And I wanted to really connect it with daily life. And I was kind of working out my own understandings as I was living in these places, which were a little more isolated from, like... uh, the centers for people. There were a lot of people interested in meditation. Although Kentucky was pretty interesting, because I, as I mentioned, I think I would go out to the Catholic monastery of Gethsemane, and there were a lot of pe- interesting people there. Rural Ohio was a little different. Uh, and was was harder, but um, I'd worked out these understandings, and then I I came to this retreat which was carried out in ways I had experienced many, many times before at previous retreats. And I just said, um, I think it was partly by the way it was done in the teaching, maybe some of the teachings, we're just being treated as if we were monks or nuns, but we're not, we're in the world. And I don't know if I can quite get the passion up for <laughs> why I got so angry. And saying it, I say, why did I get so angry about that? <laughs> but um, maybe I had, and I had, I had bit, you know, I had experienced this many times before. It wasn't like the retreat was any different. But something in me was very sensitive to the issue that the way the retreat was being conducted really wasn't training us to go back and make this work in daily life. Something like that, and I think it's still an issue for our retreats, to be honest. Um, one of the reasons we're doing this kind of retreat, actually. Um, and and so I got really, really angry at this, and, and I went and talked to uh, Jack Cornfield, who was uh, one of the teachers, and we had a talk, and he said, you know. Uh, I can sympathize some with your anger. But you have two choices. You can go home, <laughs> or you can stay and be mindful and work with the anger. And he said, I'll give you a few techniques. He said, basically, uh, we used some techniques which we got from a Burmese teacher named Upandita. It was very simple, just to, at the end of every sitting, just to take a few notes about what happened did that and I also was given instructions to really watch when the anger shifted to something else because I would stay with it and it would shift at times you know Uh, psychologists sometimes call anger a cover emotion because there's almost always typically something beneath it like sadness something like that or disappointment or hurt Um, and so uh, I said uh, I think I'll stay and worked with, uh, worked with the, those instructions for 10 days. And I took notes. And at the end of four or five days, I looked over my notes. It was very interesting. It was like a flow chart of my anger. And, and what I found, this was really like a, a lot of continual mindfulness. It was actually, after a while, got incredibly interesting. And I guess I was um, I was able to be mindful enough so I could really stay with the anger It wasn't, I don't remember the anger taking me away where I couldn't be mindful. There was was enough mindfulness so I could stay with it. But I still was very angry at times. And and, um, sometimes uh, uh, I would really notice how it was in the body. So when we're wanting to be mindful of difficult emotions, really, how is it in the body? What's it like? You know, with the anger, I could feel fire sometimes. I could feel agitation. I could feel sometimes even uh, nausea, actually, when I stayed with it. A lot of different uh, body sensations, quite a range. I also was surprised that there were many forms of anger. That was really interesting for me. I found that there there wasn't just one anger there. I thought there were multiple forms of anger. Sometimes my anger was like petty reactivity. I just, I didn't get my way. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know that one? <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes when I stayed with the anger, it, um, it changed. And sometimes it changed into a sadness. You know, and the content would be something like, I'm sad that I feel isolated here, or my voice, I just feel alone with this view I have, which I think it feels like some wisdom, but I just feel alone, and I'm sad, and I can't express it, and so forth. And then sometimes, of course, when I would feel that sadness, it would connect with other times in my life when something similar had happened. So you know, the emotions are all interconnected, at a subterranean level, right? There's kind of like you go beneath the surface and they're very connected. So a lot of inquiry and other things can turn up in other aspects of my life. And sometimes I would stay with the sadness and would actually open up to love. So I think I would disagree a little bit with that earlier sense of anger. I found that anger had at times, not always, part of the motivating energy was love this, is, this would be connected to how we were talking about the passion for justice, sometimes being connected with anger. But I found love there, and it was love for the community. I want us to be healthy, right? I want us to really be uh, mature on these issues. And there was a kind of care and love connected with that. And sometimes the anger would take the form of a, like a Hebrew prophet, and I would have cosmic anger. And I would sit there and say, you can do what you want, but this is the way it needs to be. <laughs> a little dangerous form of anger for, for, for a little bit. But it happens, you know. Ten days of anger and 18 hours a day, a lot of things happen, right? So sometimes I would be like an Old Testament prophet, right? And I'd be saying, you better get your stuff together because mm, otherwise there will be suffering. (laughs) (laughs) So you can see... uh, um, uh, That's right. (laughs) That's right. It was at a Catholic retreat center. Uh, I had never thought of that, but I, yeah. To be honest, I think I might have had that same experience at Spirit Rock. because yeah, I think I have some, actually, some Hebrew prophet energy in me. <laughs> okay, which I, which I'm, I, I like. You know. Um, anyway, so you get the idea. You know. So we can really inquire. We can really investigate, study it. What's it like in the body? Stay with it. Where does it go? What's it like? What does it feel like? What opens up for us? You know, what? How is it connected with different parts? And when you, so you can get a sense of, uh, you know, when I would take those notes after four or five days, it was like, wow, this is a flow chart of my anger. Cool, wow, amazing. You know, just it was like, wow, this is this is how anger flows in me. Very very interesting. And you can do that with fear. You know, you can study the or any of these difficult emotions. Study the nature of what, how does fear appear in the body. You know, it changes the physiology, right? Study it. What's it like? Can do Again, we need support, sometimes protect environment. Study how does the mind work with fear. Often, uh, fear confuses us, right? There's confusion with fear. It confuses our thinking often. And I think much like anger, when I've investigated fear, uh, not so much using the antidote like with the bear, but really investigating it, I've seen, I think what in a certain way is obvious, that fear can be, we can get caught in fear where it becomes quite destructive. But I I would say that all emotions um, have at times significant intelligence, It's kind of obvious with fear, right? You know, I might have fear of getting hurt, and that might actually be very helpful to have that fear. If I'm at the edge of a cliff, fear is not dysfunctional, <laughs> right? And I, I, so I think we can, that's one of the interesting things. All the difficult emotions actually have some wisdom and intelligence, but they can easily, we, when we get lost in them, they become destructive, right? And this kind of segues into the last point I'll make, which is that we can also work with difficult emotions with wisdom. And it actually relates to the last aspect of the model of RAIN, which is non-identification, or not taking it personally. We can be with the difficult emotions much like a scientist, which is really the spirit of meditation, right? We learn to study it. We learn to be with it, as if we were a biologist studying a species in the forest. Right? I think I think you got that from the way I was talking about looking at anger, right? And it, you know, uh, I had to get interested in the anger. So, so part of uh, what comes along with investigation and non identification is actually interest. Oh, because I felt after working with anger or times when I have worked with fear, I have never really understood anger or fear in this way ever. This basic human um, emotion, we can actually, um, with the practices we do here, we will know these emotions. It's as if we've never really looked carefully at them. And so we have that potential to do so. And the spirit is that of non-identification, not taking it personally, of being with the emotions. And again, this takes balance, right? This takes balance and support. But when we get to a balanced place, we can have that wisdom. Sometimes we can use the wisdom of knowing this is impermanent and being aware of change, much like when I was instructed to be with the anger and watch when it changes. Watch how things move. They always move. There's always change. Part of wisdom is to be aware of impermanence. Very helpful in difficult circumstances, right? Difficult emotions. This is really difficult, but I've studied impermanence a lot, and I know it's not going to last forever. The fearful mind says this will last forever. Right? But we, our wisdom tells us otherwise. And it's the wisdom of knowing... Also, uh, the patterns of suffering. It's the wisdom of knowing, ah, when I resist this or when I grasp hold of something, I will suffer. When I resist actually feeling the anger, it is not wise. And it actually is connected with a certain kind of suffering. And this only comes out of experience and wisdom, that opening up to experience is a way to to wisdom and deep happiness, and that suppressing experience is unwise, and although there might be short-term lack of suffering in certain ways, in long-term it's not, and it numbs us, and we don't really live, right? And it's wisdom that tells us that. It says, let's, uh, to repress this, or even to um, have certain thoughts may not be wise, so our wisdom can guide us, maybe to say, that thought repeated over and over again is not helpful. That negative thought of self, that negative judgment repeated over and over again, uh, don't go there. Yeah. Don't go there, Donald. That's not good. Not helpful. That's wisdom. And it comes out of experience. It's not like applying an abstract principle, but it comes out of, especially, of having watched the experience, our experiences over and over again. That's where wisdom really comes from. So that, those are classically the three main areas of wisdom: uh, non-identification, not taking something personally, noticing impermanence, and really being aware of the patterns of suffering that lead to suffering. So this is our, um, you know, call it our toolbox or our set of guiding, guiding practices and principles for working with difficult emotions. And I think when we, when we learn to do it at an individual level, we start to be able to bring it out into interpersonal relationships, into groups, into organizations, into families, where there are further complexities, but I think the principles are the same, much like the truth mandala is a more complicated way of embodying everything I've talked about tonight, right? Do you get that? It's like making a welcome space where emotions can be there, be heard, be felt, not necessarily identified with, respected, and worked with. And that when we do that, something shifts, right? Something shifts when we're willing to do that. So that's a very creative way to apply exactly the principles and practice I've been talking about uh, in a group context, or it could be an organizational context. And I actually think we can do that on a social level I think if you look to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of South Africa, they used a lot of what uh, I've been talking about yeah. Maybe I can say a little more about that um, tomorrow and bring that in. But I want to end with um, another poem. And this may be a familiar one to you. It's also by our friend Rumi. And this is the uh, poem, The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. the dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Thank you very much for your kind attention. And I don't wish that in the next period of time you have difficult emotions, but if they arise, may you respond skillfully. (laughs) We have about... uh... Thank you for listening.